Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight's class is titled Perfecting the World, a Mitzvah at a Time. We're at this, still at the beginning of chapter 37. And uh, we're going to jump straight into it. Okay. Chapter 37 is on page 168. 168. So, previously we learned the value of a mitzvah and of the physical deed which is going to affect the physical world and that Hashem wants a dwelling place in this world. And we briefly started chapter 37 sharing that the way we're going to bring God down into this world when Mashiach comes, that revelation is through our actions today. Let's quickly review that idea that the way we're going to have the revelation of God when Mashiach comes is through our actions today. A brief review, page 168, chapter 37. This culminating fulfillment of the Messianic era, this, that when Mashiach comes, and of the res resurrection of the dead, when the dead are going to come back, that at that time, which is the revelation of the light of the Ain of blessed is He, in this material world, if you want that Hashem should be revealed in this physical world, it's dependent on you. Depends on... Your act, on our actions and service through the duration of the Gullahs, through our actions in a time of exile, that is how we bring down, we bring down Hashem, which will be revealed when Mashiach comes. Are you familiar with the word Mashiach and Hashem? Good. Good. Yes. Perhaps you don't want to do this now, but it seems to me to be essential to the text. For the purposes of our understanding here, would you briefly define what we're talking about when we say Moshiach? I'm, I'm going to leave it as the Messianic era for now. Well, all right, would you yeah. define the Messianic era? Not right now. I'll leave that. Okay, I'm glad yeah. I asked. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what I want to stress, the next words. For what causes the reward of a commandment, Ki sechar mitzvah is the commandment itself. You want the reward. The reward is the mitzvah itself. Let me give you an example. It's, it's a small example. It's a bad example, but I'll give you an example. I was recently, just as an introduction to the example, I was recently at a convention in Danbury, Connecticut. And by the convention, someone said that the best we could do in life is give bad examples. The best, what? the best we could do is give bad examples. Through bad examples, we'll come to good examples. So I'm going to give you a bad example. Okay. If someone comes over to you, let's say, today it's so hard to, to use high people because if I use the president, I'll get flagged. So who's someone like? We don't mind. Who's someone? I want you to take. I want you to. I want. I want you to imagine there was a king. Imagine there was a king. And the king comes to you and says, can you please get me a coffee? He wants a coffee. And he sees you on the street and he says, can you please get me a coffee? So, it's a petty thing. Mm -hmm. But your biggest reward is the attention the king gave you. The king has asked you mm -hmm. to get him a coffee. Mm -hmm. The biggest reward is your action itself. The mitzvah, when you go ahead and you do a mitzvah and you connect with Hashem on the deepest level at that time, that's the biggest reward. You're drawing down, you're connecting with Hashem on the greatest level possible. Because by, go ahead. If Hashem asks me to do something, then when I do it, I'm connecting with Him. Mm -hmm. On the deepest level possible, yeah. Because by that wasn't, that wasn't a bad example. That was a good example. Well, thank you. Uh, another time I'll explain to you why I said a bad example. But because by virtue of performing it, the person suffuses a flood of light of the angel of blessed is he from above downward to be clothed in the corporeality of the world in something that was previously under the dominion of the Klipas Noga, from which it had received its vitality. This is where we got last time to summarize, and then we're going to continue. To summarize, when we take something that was previously had the potential for good and bad and we use it for good that is the greatest pleasure to Hashem if you have a, a perfect person the perfect person doesn't bring Hashem such pleasure when you go ahead and you take something that's not perfect and you make it good 
in the terms of Kabbalah, when you take Klipas Noga, something that has a potential for good and bad, and you use it for the good, it brings the greatest joy to Hashem. And now, that's what we're going to clarify right now. We're going to clarify in the realm of the inanimate. We're going to talk about giving charity, which is an inanimate object. We're going to talk about the, the uh, growing items, such as an esrog, how we could use something that grows. We're going to talk about something that lives, like animals. How could we use these items that naturally are on the fringe of good and bad? How could we take them and use them for the good? And one of the things that I, I share often, but I want to stress again is, Hashem has told us how to love Him. And Hashem has told us how to connect with Him. We could go ahead and say, and, and so often we say, I connect with Hashem in this way. But that's not the way we could. Hashem tells us how to connect with Him. I, 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 you'll forgive me because I share it often. But in a marriage, the spouse, if, if you're going to tell your spouse how they love you, it's not going to work. Your spouse tells you how to love them. Hashem has told us how to love Him. And that's the way that we're going to connect with Him. Through the mitzvot. Through the mitzvot. So for example, as we're going to learn in a minute, if you're going to steal money and give it as charity, Hashem says, I don't, that's not a mitzvah to me. I don't, I don't accept that. Mm-hmm. Let's see it inside. So, a guy like Bernie Madoff, who stole money from Jews and was very philanthropic with that money, doesn't count. On a personal level, I can't apply it. I don't know the details. But I, I know the simple meaning of the Tanya. The Tanya says some, that... Let's see the Tanya inside. Okay. There are all, these are all those things that, were, that are ritually clean and permissible. That means something which is clean... I didn't say it's holy. But what I'm saying is it's clean. It's ritually clean and permissible. And you take this ritually clean item wherewith the precept of action is performed and you're doing a mitzvah with it. For example, for example, parchment used in the tefillin. You have an, a kosher animal that was slaughtered properly and now you have that meat. The fact that the meat is kosher doesn't mean that you're going to use it for holy purposes. You could go to Safeway, buy kosher meats and use it for inappropriate purposes. So we're saying you ha- you've taken something permissible, you've taken a kosher animal and you're using the parchment in the tefillin or in a mezuzah, a Torah scroll. As taught by the rabbis that nothing is fitting for a sacred purpose which is not clean and permissible for consumption. The rabbis have taught us that in order to be able to use the leather for a tefillin Mezuzah or Sefer Torah needs to come from an animal that we could also eat, a kosher animal. So you've taken something that is permissible and you've now made it holy. You've actually used it for a holy purpose, a Sefer Torah, Tefillin, or Mezuzah. Similarly, an Esrog, which is not Arla. An Esrog, we, na- we know, Esrog is not a... An Esrog is a citrus. You go to Italy, they're all over. I have a friend who yesterday emailed me that he's growing an esrog, men, numerous esrog trees here in Portland, about a block, oh, about a mile away on Barber Boulevard. Now those esrogim, they're nice, but they're not holy. We could take them and make them holy by using them on Sukkot. With the caveat that the esrog is not Arla. What is Arla? The Torah says the first three years of produce, you're not allowed to eat. By the way, I only learned this when I went to a farm recently. In, in America, we have the same rule. The first three years of produce that you, on a farm, they get rid of. I didn't know that. Why is that? Really? I went to, I'll just tell you the facts, what I experienced. I went to pick apples this past year, Rosh Hashanah time, and I learned something new. They had like nect- they were growing nectarines, and they, this is what they told me. The first three years, legally, the government says you can't grow the fruit. You have to let them go to waste. I don't know the law. I can't tell you. I have a lawyer here. Maybe we could look into it. But uh, oh, he, d- he defends bad fruits. He has uh, a reason, <laughs> so we'll uh, figure, figure it he d- out. He defends bad fruits. <laughs> it's yes, I do. They're all calls. So, an esrog that is Arla, if you have an inappropriate esrog and you bless with it on Sukkot, you haven't elevated it. So, again, we need to take something permissible and then use it for something good. Let's skip the notes. So too, money given to charity, which cannot be dishonestly acquired. 
if you take charity, and it wasn't dishonestly acquired, and similarly with all other things. So if you take something that is not holy, it's, it can be used for holiness, and you then go ahead and use it for a mitzvah, Hashem comes down to the greatest way into that item. Let's see the note now. The note is very powerful. The note tells us, why can't you use something unholy? What's the problem? Why can't you go and take this, this esrog, that is, it's the second year of the tree's growth, and use it? Why won't Hashem like it? For Arla, we're in the note on page 168, for Arla is one of the three completely impure klipot. If you remember, there are some things that Hashem says are completely impure that can never ascend into holiness. So if you're going to go and try and do a mitzvah with this Ezrog, it is fully impure. There is no way for it to be elevated. As explained in Eitz Chayim, next page, similarly the performance of any precept involving a transgression, God forbid, any mitzvah that is done, but a mitzvah, but there's a sin within it, you can't elevate it. Hashem says that the foundation of your mitzvah is completely impure and it can't be elevated. What happens if you, you elevate it and you're not, you don't recognize it wasn't properly elevated? So, give me an example. Well, okay, I think that, uh, so, uh, instead of uh, waiting three years, somebody tells me, uh, it's three years, but the fruit's only been two years. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I use that, uh, and the kilopot basically doesn't, so you mistakenly... I mistakenly. It's not intentionally. Not intentionally. Yes, good question. Very good question. And I find out after the fact. Right. How do I... Or you don't find out. Or, or I don't Either way, what, what, what's the story? Yeah. What's the story? In chapter 7, we spoke about such a night. We spoke at length about this. We spoke about at length about eating kosher, the power of the kosher food, the idea of connecting with impurity. And what we learned is that unfortunately, you, you may not be familiar with this, but there are some people that have sinned. Have that have sinned, not followed all of the 613 precepts of the Torah. <laughs> so, so what? So you're stuck? You're, you're in the glue and you can't get out of it? So it says Tanya that we need to do tshuva. That's what tshuva is. That's what repentance is. Repentance is the ability for us to break the natural boundaries. That's what repentance is. And sometimes we also need to cry to God. It's a good question. It's a good question, but we have to do our best. And like I said, sometimes we need to repent and cry to God to help us. Thank you. Okay, so we're talking about the power of the mitzvah. And we've said that when you do a mitzvah with something permissible, you're elevating that thing. Thus, back in page 170 of Tanya, when a person performs the divine commandment and will, you're doing what Hashem told you to do. Not what you say is Hashem wants you to do. What Hashem tells you to do. By means of these clean things, again, it's with a permissible item, the vitality that is in them ascends. The energy that, that is inside of this mitzvah goes straight to Hashem and is dissolved and absorbed into the light of the Ein Sof, blessed is He. When you do a mitzvah, the energy of that mitzvah completely connects with Hashem. There's nothing stopping it from connecting with Hashem on the highest level. Blessed, which is His will, blessed be He that is clothed in them. In the mitzvah you've done, Hashem's will isn't there. Since therein, there is no concealment of countenance whatsoever to obscure His light, blessed be He. When you do a mitzvah, there's nothing stopping Hashem from being revealed. So when you go ahead and you put on tefillin, and it's, just, it's with permissible tefillin. When you go ahead and you get stuck, it's with permissible stuck. There's nothing stopping you from connecting with Hashem in, the, in an unbelievable union. And that's what happens. So your soul, what have we said now? Your godly soul connects with Hashem. Now that's not so fantastic. That's, your godly soul could connect. Your godly soul natural, naturally connects with Hashem. Let's go deeper, let's go much deeper. Your animalistic soul. Hmm. Well, what Tani's going to do now, it's going to say your godly soul connects with Hashem through a mitzvah. 
you're, the energy of the animal soul connects with Hashem through a mitzvah. The entire animal soul through that energy connects with Hashem. And thus the entire world connects with Hashem. So every mitzvah you do, we're going to learn, has an overreaching effect on the entire world. Let's see that. So we've said so far, when you do a mitzvah, your godly soul completely connects with Hashem. In like manner, the energy of the vital animal soul, which is in the organs of the body of the person, the, the animalistic soul is within the blood. It runs within the blood of the person. That's what it says in the organs of the body of the person, performing the commandment. You, inside of your full body, is the animalistic soul. And the only way for your body to move is through your animalistic soul. Your godly soul is too godly for your body. So let's imagine... Actually, I, I think I recently heard that for America to send rockets, they work with Russia. Is that correct? And China. And China. In, in other words, America currently is not sending its own rockets. Rather, through Russia, is there such a thing? I think they all share the same, all share the technology. They're all sharing. The, the godly soul cannot communicate with the body. It's too godly. The only way for it to communicate is through working with the animalistic soul. So when you do a mitzvah, your godly soul has worked with your animalistic soul to do the mitzvah, to put on the tefillin. And therefore that energy of the animalistic soul involved in the mitzvah is also elevated. And it rises from the kalipa and is absorbed into the holiness of the mitzvah, which is his will, blessed be he. And is dissolved into the light of the angel of blessed is he. Just like the godly soul connects with Hashem. So to the energy of the animalistic soul involved in the mitzvah also completely unites with Hashem. Okay, so let's review. Every time we do a mitzvah, if you go ahead and you give, I don't want to use charity because charity we'll learn later is unbelievable. But uh, so throw out a mitzvah. Throw, what, what's one of the 613? Uh, lighting candles. Lighting candles. Lighting candles is a rough one. I'm happy you said that example. It's rough because it's a rabbinic commandment. But I'll use that example. There's seven rabbinic commandments. The mitzvah of Hanukkah, Purim, lighting Shabbos candles is one of them. Why do we light Shabbos candles? It brings in the Shabbos. Brings in the Shabbos. The main reason we light Shabbos candles is that there's shalom bayis. It's interesting. It brings the light of Hashem into the holiday. It brings the light of Hashem, but on a very technical, technical level, the reason for candles is that there should be shalom bayis. There should be peace in the house. And that's why. The, that's why the woman lights the candles. But let's talk about lighting the candles. Lighting the candles. When you light the candles, you're using your hand. And you're waving your hand. Different energies of your body are involved. All of those energies, when you light the candles, are now elevated to Hashem. Okay, so when you do a physical mitzvah, the energy within your body is elevated to Hashem. So comes the obvious question, and we're going to digress here, probably till the end of tonight's class. In Tanya, what happens? Something that only involves speech. In other words, what is the value in our current conversation of speech? If we're talking and we want to go ahead and draw Hashem down into this world, so I understand the physical deed, charity, eating, lighting candles, there's movement. But when you learn, right, you could sit still and you're learning, what energy does that have energy that's affecting the animalistic soul? Is that called action? In other words, let me rephrase the question. Is speech deemed action in our conversation here? Action that's going to affect the animalistic soul? Absolutely, yeah. Why do you say absolutely? Because if I didn't talk, how would the animalistic soul know? Through my thoughts? You need the animalistic soul in order to talk. So there's still energy from the animalistic soul affected. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that if I don't, I've got my thoughts, yeah. but I, I, I think, I mean, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, that if I don't verbalize, I don't activate, I don't trigger the animalistic soul. We prepare, action requires thought to act. Action requires thought. 
It's also true. What were you going to say, Dr. Malov? So I, I think it's worthwhile to look back into chapter 35. And you should know, when I was learning this chapter, I was very, very bothered by this. On page 162, at the top of the page, do you see right? Do you see in the for, in the after the note? There's a line that starts perfect union. Again, we're on page 162, mm-hmm. and the line starts perfect. This starts perfect union. Mm-hmm. Right after that, it says. This constitutes the resting of the Shekhinah on his divine soul. So Tanya is saying when you speak, it only affects the divine soul. As the rabbi stated, even if one person occupies himself seriously with the Torah, the Shekhinah is with him. So Tanya is saying, speech only affects the godly soul and continues Tanya. However, if you want to draw the light of the Shekhinah also over his body and animal soul, i.e. on the vital spirit clothed in the physical body, he needs to fulfill the practical commandments which are performed by the body itself. So Tanya in chapter 35 told us that if you want to affect the, God, the animalistic soul, you must use action. Speech is not enough. And what's interesting here we're going to learn is that, that speech is enough. Is the question clear? Yep. Yes, David. The reason why he is right is because. (laughs) Can you say, can you read out of the sitter, the Shema, just read it? Yes. Yes, you can, of course you can. When does it assume potency? What's the answer? The answer is when you say it as well as read it. I think the term that comes up most often in the Siddur is modim. You not only read the word, but you also express yourself, and that gives, and I use the word again, potency to the mitzvah of davening. You're talking about kavana, right? Intent. Is that correct? I can intend all kinds of stuff and never say a word, but it does not, it does not get its vitality until I speak it. You're supposed to say I agree. Yes, well, I agree. The, the, the truth is, I just want to say, Mark said the, said the answer earlier, which is that... So we could have avoided all of this. No, no, no. Actually, we learn in Torah, the question is also Torah. Okay. A question, if you know the answer, the question is still Torah. So, so again, the, in chapter 30... No, you actually didn't answer the question. Let me repeat. The so question is, in chapter 35, we learn that speech is not action. Here we're going to learn speech is action. And I just want to clarify, I want to share the answer. And why do we say the sayings of the fathers? Why don't we say the mental contemplations of the fathers? In chapter... Speech is not really action. Speech is a little bit like action. In chapter 35, we're talking about the hardcore. Speech is not action. Chapter 37, we're, we're learning, nonetheless, speech is in a minute way action, yes. The only way for you to speak is through using your animalistic soul. And it, it does affect the animalistic soul. But if you want the bank for your buck, that's not going to be through speech. If you want to really affect the animalistic soul, that's going to be through the hardcore action. How do we know that speech is action? How do we know speech is action? It's a, it's a Torah law. The Torah says that if someone sins, they need to bring a sin offering. They need to what? Bring a karban chatat. A karban chatat is a sin offering. But in order to, to need to bring the karban chatat, the sin offering, this, the sin needed to have action with it. If the sin does not have action, you don't need to bring this sacrifice. So the Gemara says 
that moving your lips is enough of an action to deem you not, to, to require you to bring a, a sacrifice. So the Talmud itself tells us clearly that speech is like action regarding this sacrifice. Okay, so we see in a small way speech is like, sacri- is, is like action and therefore, yes, even though it won't affect your body in the same way, when you do just use speech, you're still affecting your animalistic soul. Okay, so if someone says something hurtful, I would think they should do teshuva if they said something hurtful to another person. I mean, isn't that... Yes, you're correct. Okay. I mean, that's regarding Yom Kippur, we have a big, big mm-hmm. section about that. We have a primal example. Did God say to Moses, Here, here's these tablets, take them down. No, he spoke and everybody heard it. And then Moses brought the tablets. Why did he need to speak? Why did he need to speak in all those languages? Why do the bride and groom, uh, well, that's a separate deal. But it, it, Hashem thought it was important enough to speak. It's good enough for me. No, I agree with you, David. There's no question speech is important. The question is, is the value of speech similar to action? That's the question. So when you say action, what do you mean? I mean... If speech, if speech is one kind of action, what are the other kinds of actions? Well, and indeed in Sinai, the speech was action. I bet... I, I know, I the definition it. of action in our conversation is the need for the body to get involved. Like putting on So kinesthetically get involved. Yeah. Are you reco- because if your body's not involved, then it could be only your godly soul is involved. In our conversation here, we're try- we want to bring God onto your animalistic soul. Mm-hmm. To, to connect with Hashem in, in, on your animalistic soul, you need to move your body. So the question is, is speech enough movement of your body that requires your animalistic soul to get involved. And what we're saying is yes, but in a very small way. Mm-hmm. If you want to truly affect your body, it's not going to be through speech. It's a secondary method of affecting your body. But yes, you're right. Speech is of extreme importance. Yes. David, uh, yes, uh, Dr. Mallow. Yes, I had a question. Well, we, we know that uh, you know, to speak, to speak uh, your brain is involved. Um, your vocal cords are involved, and, and, and so on. Um, so these are all part of your body. Uh, I mean, if somebody has had a stroke you know, or something like that, yeah. mm-hmm. the effects that are speaking of it, they're not be able to speak. You know, they have aphasia. So, yeah. Or if they, they, you know, they don't have aphasia, something happens to their vocal cords. They, you know, so, so, so really, you need your body in order to speak. Yes, I agree. I agree. But what he's saying is that there's speech is one action, moving your body is another action, and that reinforces if you're doing all the actions, including speaking. Is that, I don't know if that's... Yeah, I want to add to that. I think I'm also saying that speech is, is more spiritual. Speech is more is more spiritual than moving your hands. Let me share two two items. Firstly, I want to start off by sharing a passage in Tillim, chapter thirty-five, verse ten. The chapter says, "All my bo- all my bones will exclaim. All my bones will explain. Hashem who's like Hashem." So what do you mean, all my bones will explain? So I'll just tell you, first you have the halacha from this. All my bones will explain. That's one of the reasons why when we learn, we get, we get involved. We don't sit like this. A practical law from this, the Ramah, tells us in Shulchan Aruch, that when we learn, where does the, why, do we, why do we move? Because we want all our bones to be involved in praising Hashem. Called shuckling, right? Yeah, you shuckle. Thank you. The Zohar says, why do we move when we daven? Because every person is like a candle. And you ever saw a candle stand still? The candle is always moving back and forth. They also say that sitting is the new smoking. So you shouldn't move. (laughs) (laughs) 
So that's number one. Call out to my say Temarno. Women too? Because you don't see women, you know. So perhaps you don't see them in public oh. when they're around men. Oh. Maybe it wouldn't be so appropriate. Yeah. But um, the idea of, of ha being fully involved would apply for women equally. Let me tell you a story. So Beruria, uh, who's heard of Beruria? Beruria is a famous woman of, of Ramea. Yeah. Didn't what's her name love her? El, uh, um, Alicia loved her? Alicia Benavuya? Yeah. Maybe. Could be. I'm, I'm not familiar. King from Game of Thrones. No, no, no. That would be, she was brilliant. But may, oh, Beruria. Beruria was a fa I'm not sure of your specific story, but Beruria was the wife of Rabbi Mayer, very famous woman. She's a Talmudic figure. Yeah, yeah. No, but they had a very good marriage. And uh, you didn't want to start up with her, extremely sharp. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of her, of her sharpness. Rabbi Yaisi Haglili, I'll tell you a story. Rabbi Yaisi Haglili, great Torah scholar. We talk about him. Rabbi Yaisi, he's about to get in trouble. He's going, he's taking a trip. He's by the corner of, I don't know, Tewilliger and Capitol Highway. No, they don't meet up, do they? Oh, he's by the corner of, uh, right here. Capital, Capital Highway in Vermont. And Bertha. <laughs> and Bertha. And he doesn't know where to go. So Amar La, he turns to Beruri and he says, Be'ezai derech nelech lelot. Which way do I need to go to get to the city of Lod? So Amrulay, she's sharp. She, Amrulay, she says, Galili. His name was Rabbi Yisiyah Galili. He says, Galili, shaita. I don't, want, I don't know how they translate shaita. How do they say uh, Foolish. Foolish Galilean. She's talking to big Torah guys. It's foolish Galilean. Like hachamru hachamim, didn't the rabbis teach us in ethics of our fathers al-tar ma'isha that a man shouldn't have, shouldn't increase in conversation with a woman? So, one second. What should have he said? He needs to know where to go. You're allowed to ask. You're allowed to ask how to get to so, how to get to Lud. You don't have to get you don't have to get lost. Like part of me. So so she and she tells him she answers those same questions. She says, you should have said instead of you should have used We're to Lud. That's one story. That's one story. Too many words. Uh, she, she, didn't give the rabbi, she didn't give the Torah scholars an easy time. So now another time she walks into the base medrash. And she sees a young student, he's learning very nicely. But he's learning quietly. Okay, he's about to get in trouble. So she starts screaming at him. I'm, I'm already scared. <laughs> he's, he's, doing a, he's doing a nice job. He's learning nicely. She says, I'm relate. She says, Doesn't the Torah tell us? If it's organized in everything, it will be remembered. It will be guarded. And she now translates this, this verse. She tells the Torah scholar, if you're going to learn with energy and get your whole body involved, so then, you'll remember the Torah study. But if you're just going to learn quietly and not get your whole being involved, it's not going to be remembered. So here, this story again shows us that we want to try, even in our Torah learning, try and get the maximum energy within that Torah learning. We don't just want to sit there. We want to try and get fully involved. Now, I want to clarify. This doesn't mean we need to start screaming. <laughs> Sometimes you'll think, oh, and feel in prayer, I need to get there and start shouting out. That's not, that's not what it means. It means so that we need to use our entire being. Entire our, our entire being. The, the Mittler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, he used to sweat during davening, and he was davening quietly. But he was sweating from the mental energy that he was putting into davening. So our job is to start sweating from davening. To really try and put in all the energy we can. Okay, let's, let's look back inside of Tanya again. We're going to learn that speech has a, has, is in a way like action. Yet we should try and use as much of our body we can within the speech. Likewise, we're on the bottom of page 170, the left-hand column. Likewise, 
in regard to the commandment of Torah study and the recital of Shema and prayer. Torah study is with speech. Shema is with speech. Prayer is with speech. Why is Shema and prayer separated? Isn't Shema part of prayer? Say it again. Chayas. It's interesting. Prayer, there's no commandment. I should be careful. There's a command to pray. But the, the Torah commandment is to say Shema every day. Prayer is something we learn now. It's a set, an, an added piece. But the Shema is, a, is an item of itself. Mm. We know, the, for example, the Amidah, that when we're quietly praying to God, that's something that the rabbis have instituted. That's why it separates Shema and prayer. So likewise, in regards to the commandment of Torah study and the recital of Shema and prayer and similar precepts, although do they, not, they do not involve physical action in the strict sense, you're not moving your whole body, such as would be dominated by the klipas noga, meaning that all of a sudden the klipa, the negative energy, is not really connected so much. It's more godly. Nevertheless, it has been established that meditation cannot take the place of speech. Thinking is not speaking. And that a person does not fulfill the commandment until he has uttered the words with his lips. If you go and, and think Shema in your head, you haven't fulfilled the commandment. Like David said, Hashem physically spoke to us. Thinking itself is not enough. And it has been established that the articulation by the lips is deemed as action. When we go ahead and say something, it's considered action. You need to bring that sacrifice for the words you use. Although you only need to bring the sacrifice if you sin with action. Why? Why is speech, in a sense, like action for the divine soul, cannot express itself through the lips and mouth and tongue and teeth, lips, mouth, tongue, and teeth, which are all corporeal, corporeal except through the agency of the vital animal soul, which is closed to the organs of the physical body. The only way for your lips, your mouth, your tongue, your, your teeth, to move and allow speech to happen is through the animalistic soul getting involved. Hence, the more strength one's put, one puts into his speech, the more of the vital soul's energy does he introduce and invest into those words. The more we get involved physically in, what, in the holiness of what we're praying, what we're learning, the more you're getting your animalistic soul within it. And this is the meaning of the verse, as I said before. All my bones shall declare. Get all of your bones involved. Get your whole body involved. This is also what the rabbis meant when they said... If the Torah is within all the 248 organs, it will be preserved. But if not, it will not be preserved. What do you mean? Why? What was Beruria telling this, this rabbi? She was telling him, she's screaming at him saying, if, you, if you're quiet, you're going to forget everything. What do you mean? Why are you going to forget if you're quiet? We, actually, factually, we know that pronouncing things helps memory. But what, what was she telling him if you don't? Forgetfulness is, is a curse. Forgetfulness is not holiness. The way, the way we forget is because we're connected to something not holy. And what she was telling him is, if your entire being is holy, then you won't have the, spirit, the negativity of forgetfulness. If your entire being is godly, then you don't have the kalipa of forgetfulness. That's what we learn now. The, for forgetfulness comes from the klipa of the body and the vital animal soul. Forgetfulness is coming from klipa, which are of the klipas noga that is sometimes absorbed into holiness, which is accomplished when one weakens their power. So how do you make sure that the klipa is absorbed into holiness? When you weaken their power and trans transfer all their strength, into the holiness of the Torah prayer. So what we've learned right now is that when we go ahead and do a mitzvah, we're making our godly soul connect with Hashem and even the energy of our animalistic soul involved in that mitzvah. I want to share with you a medrash. We learned that if you forget, that forgetfulness comes from klipa. Let me share with you the following medrash. Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem shares Ba'olam Hazal Yidei Yeter Hara Hayulameidin Mishtakhin Where does forgetfulness come from? It comes from the Yeter Hara From the evil inclination Avol Olam Haba When Mashiach comes Ani Oiker Yeter Hara Mikam I'm going to remove the evil inclination V'eincha Mishtakhin And the forgetfulness won't be here anymore. So forgetfulness, Beruria is screaming at this Talmud Chacham and he's saying, she's telling him, you want to remember what you're learning. 
get your entire being involved, remove any of the negative klipa from you, and then you won't have that forgetfulness within you. We're trying here. Are there any questions? Any questions? Yes, I'm sorry. I should have asked earlier then. Yes, more about it. Um, what about aging? Though? Aging? Uh, Tell me the question. Well, with forgetfulness, it's kind of aging. Or is it, is it always clear? Aging comes. Sorry, the forgetfulness of aging, aging still comes from the animalistic soul within you. That's the ability for there to be, that's what Hashem says, the ability for there to be forgetfulness comes from the animalistic soul within you. And that's not a bad thing. Beruria, though, was telling this Talmud Chacham that if you're able to conquer the animalistic soul, then you won't forget. I don't know. Are there people that are sharp? Yes. I get, there is the ability. It doesn't mean that if someone's starting to forget that they're a bad person. And it doesn't mean that if someone remembers that they're a holy person. What it does mean is, what we do know is, that, they, that the ability at least to remember even more will come through the more physical energy we'll put into our learning. Do you mean like an organic issue yeah. with your brain aging? Right. She means you know, organically <clears throat> plaque on, in your brain cells right. that, you know. And that's a little different if you have some sort of disease process that's interfering with your ability. Is forgetfulness sometimes a good thing? Like for instance, um, if you, um, if somebody did something bad, okay, rather than dwell on it and dwell on it, isn't forgetting it some? Are you forgetting or you're forgiving? Mm -hmm. No, there's, you would know more about this, but there are, there's enough medical evidence that if you did not begin to forget the actual act of trauma, be it physical or emotional, it would make it very difficult for the brain to move on. It's a healing mechanism okay. of the brain. Well, then I can't argue with that. Um, I, I, it, there must be some parts that are, that are, yes, forgetfulness is good. I was just sharing when it comes to a, if someone sinned against you, there's a discussion about forgetting or forgiving. It's, very, very, it's a very holy thing to right away let things go, if you can. I don't know if that's forgetfulness. I'm not sure what that would fall under. But it's easier to do it. Forgot it. Fine. Okay, I hear you. Not, I, not if you post-traumatic stress because you can't. fellow goes to the doctor for a follow-up appointment. The doctor says, I have two pieces of bad news. You have Alzheimer's and you have cancer. The fellow says, well, thank God I don't have cancer. We, were, we are here on a mission. We're all here on a mission. The mission is to make the entire world a place where Hashem could live. But we're talking so petty right now. We're talking about me and you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a much bigger world out there to, to take care of. Mm -hmm. right, right now, we had a whole co long conversation within, within me. Is my body purified when I, when I learn Torah? We're getting, we're getting caught up on the nuances. <laughs> what about... What about Iran? What about uh, China? What about the trees outside? We, we have a lot bigger work than just my physical body. Just me. What are we going to do about that? Right? You know, you know they say that there's a couple that had a, a husband and wife that had a beautiful relationship and someone said, how does it work? So the wife says, look, my husband and I, we established at the beginning he takes care of all the big issues, like who's going to be president. And he goes ahead and he's always worried about all the... And I take care of the small issues, what house we're going to buy, what car we're going to buy. Okay, that was a joke. Thank you all for laughing. <laughs> okay, I, I obviously said it wrong. My, 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 no, she decides what's big and what's small. So, the, the piece that I can control yeah. is pretty small. The piece that's just outside of that is the stuff I can influence. And the big stuff right outside of that is the stuff I can't control at all. So 
when I'm sitting here in Tanya class, this is a piece that I can control about how I connect with Hashem, my learning, connecting with my wife, connecting with everybody here at the table. That's what I can control. And we're all learning together going through all of this. But the, the trees and Iran and China, that's out of my control. No, it's not. The novelty. Each, go ahead, go ahead. Each little piece fits into the cosmic totality that brings about the Mashiach. We don't think about the Mashiach, at least I don't. I don't think about the Mashiach from one day to the next. All I concern myself is about whether or not I need to call up with a message to Ron Wyden. I need to write a letter uh, to someone. I need to set an example. Uh, and each little business, each little drop, each little piece of the cosmos contributes to its totality. So the butterfly effect. Right. Yes, absolutely. So the universe. Yeah. And the little cogs that make yeah. it up. I don't mean to be patronizing. You know what he means when he says the butterfly effect? I'm imagining. It means that it's a, a domino effect. One, one, one yeah. flap of a butterfly wing results in a typhoon someplace else. I just need, because it's on record, I need, it, I need to clarify and say <laughs> that we do have the 13 principles of faith. Faith. Say, I believe with complete faith in the, faith in the coming of Mashiach. And even though he may tarry, I await his coming every day. So I just want to share that we do have that obligation to think about his coming every day. But to come to this, com to this point here, we could, what you're all saying is true. We have within our, we have within, we could worry about ourselves. But actually what we're going to learn is, it's something that perhaps we've been educated without the understanding. I can only talk to myself. Until I learned this chapter recently, I didn't understand what my teachers always told me. But yes, actually our deeds, not only they have, like you're saying, the butterfly effect, mm -hmm. but they actually have an effect mm -hmm. on Iran and China. And so I want, I want to share, share with you how. A, a tiny drop of Tanya, and then we'll mm -hmm. stop with that. But an amazing, an amazing thought. Let's... You know, someone wants, just someone wants, and I'm going to repeat it again next week. Do you mind if I share this again and again next week? Someone came to the Rebbe, and he asked a question. He said, how is such and such a, com a country, it's not clear which country, how is that country, there's no Jews living there, how could it be getting ready for Mashiach? Mm. So the story goes that the Rebbe asked him which country his shirt is from, and it was from that country. Mm -hmm. If we would go around and figure out where all of the shirts that everyone in this room is wearing, where the table that we're learning on, where is this table from? Oh, China, I don't know. Where are your shoes from? Where's your, your car was made where? Tennessee. Tennessee. It's Japanese. And your glasses were made where? Malaysia. Where's your cell phone made? Huawei in China. <laughs> and that hat is from where? Gornish. <laughs> If we would take into account within our room mm -hmm. how many people have been involved in what we have here today, the pen, your cup, mm -hmm. the gas, the gas that you got here, the person who pumped the gas. If we think about all the different items that are putting us here, we'll actually see that when we do something holy, we're having not a butterfly effect just because our, but actually a butterfly effect because of the amount mm -hmm. of different energy that's involved. Mm -hmm. The people who just polished the floor here and the people who built the house, mm -hmm. I mean, the people who made the light fixtures and the light bulbs and the exit sign. Mm -hmm. So truly our deeds have not only a ripple effect but have an, an a massive effect. We'll learn, we'll learn more about this over the coming weeks. It's even, if, even if we observe from a cynical standpoint that, oh, how can that be true? Well, take a look at how long we've been here and our numbers and the impact we've had. That's not coincidence. Oh, you mean all the Jews? Pardon me? You mean the Jewish people? Absolutely. Yeah. The message that I hope everyone leaves with is your simple deeds that you, lead, that you do have a tremendous, tremendous ripple effect throughout the world. And yes, 
your deed here can be saving a life somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? Please, please do. I often feel that I really should be doing a more direct deed. For example, okay, I like to bicycle ride, and I have an opportunity to go help refurbish bicycles at this place over in Northeast, and then they give away these bicycles to deserving children, and it might help them stay up the street, meet other people that are involved in athletics, care about their body, maybe stay away from crime, give them something more to do so they're more focused. All these positive things can come from exercising. And um, I feel that that is so important that I really should be doing that. Like, is one more important than the other? I'm asking because sometimes I can't do it because my back hurts me and I can't go over and do those things. So I can't do it. So know? what's the question? Is one better than the other? Or what are you comparing it to? What? Well, I feel that I should be helping refurbish these bikes to give to a deserving child to maybe keep them off the street. So same say lighting candles on your lap, right? What? What's better what, to do? What, I just feel what, bad. What I feel, instead I feel should more, give more value not instead, to either one of them? I just feel those. bad that I'm not doing anything. But doing it, oh. Is there a hierarchy of value? Yeah, I feel bad that I'm not doing it. I feel bad that I'm not. So I, I have two points. Point A is to, to talk about your specific question. The Rambam tells us, the Torah tells us, that that your body should be healthy is also serving Hashem. So if you're not feeling up to it, so that's serving Hashem by not going. Breaking your back. To do a mitzvah, dependent on the story, I have to be careful here. There's some mitzvahs we need to go beyond. But if, uh, if we're talking about fixing bikes, and that's going to break your bike or your back, then you need to take care of your health. Okay, that makes sense. Now you asked about comparing mitzvahs. Again, the, uh, the Torah tells us we can't compare mitzvahs. We don't know which mitzvah is greater. What we do know is there's certain mitzvahs the Torah itself says override another one. Um, for example, you shouldn't drive on Shabbos, but saving a life is more important. Right. Right. So you can so, drive to save a life. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but in general, to go ahead and say it's more important to light candles or um, go to show, it's hard. It's hard. That would be a per a lot of it would be a personal question. You'd have to talk with someone on a personal level. But to compare which one is greater to Hashem, that we we don't know.